following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. June 6, 1944. This is a date that uh, anyone who's studied modern history knows. This is the date that the Allied forces in World War II launched their offensive action storming the beaches of Normandy, France, to push the Nazis out. D-Day. Day that we will forever remember. Now, the Allies began planning this offensive in 1943. About a year before the actual action took place, plans were made, and a day was set, appointed for them to launch their attack for the purpose of the rescue and restoration of conquered European nations. And ultimately, this was the beginning of the success of the Allies, the successful expulsion of the Nazis. And we can look back on this day with, with great thankfulness, great praise to God that he allowed, he caused this success, that he allowed this to be the beginning of the deliverance of Western civilization uh, in the 1940s. This is a day that, that many of us look back on or think about, contemplate those who have studied history and, and find a great joy in because we see God's great goodness. But what if, what if it had not succeeded? What if they had failed? Well, thankfully, they did not. And the question of what if is left to science fiction writers and the like because the plans of the Lord were established. But there was a possibility that they could fail. In our text this evening, in, in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10, however, we read of an offensive, uh, an attack planned by God that could not fail. In our text this evening, Paul reminds us of, of an even greater plan of rescue and redemption. A plan much, much greater than the rescue of Europe from a tyrannical government, a plan of rescue and restoration for a people, indeed for the entire cosmos. A plan that should cause us, as, as Paul does, to rejoice and give great thanks in God. So as we continue to, to work our way through this doxology in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, last time having looked at God's choosing us and, and uh, before the foundation of the world and predestining us, as we continue to look at this doxology, we, we see in verses 7 through 10 another cause to praise God, another turn of the kaleidoscope, as it were, that reveals to us the glory of our God and King. Here in verses 7 through 10, we, we see more of the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, namely, that in Christ... There is definite salvation of his people and a definite restoration of all things 
which is meant to glorify God and exalt Christ. Here in verses 7 through 10, we see that in Christ, there is definite salvation of Christ's people and a definite restoration of all things, which is meant to glorify God and exalt Christ. We will look at this text then under two main headings. First, the, the definite salvation in verses 7 and beginning of 8. And then we will look at the definite restoration in verses 8, uh, verse 8, excuse me, to verse 10. We see then the definite or certain salvation and the definite or certain restoration. Now you know, as we looked at last week, this is a doxology that Paul has written. He's praising God, and indeed he, he ends many of, of these sections uh, in this text with the phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul's purpose for this passage uh, is to stir up the hearts of the Ephesian saints and your hearts as well, to praise the Lord, to see the wonderful things which God has done in order to render glory and honor to the Lord. And then we see here in verse 7 that he does that by reminding us once again of the great salvation which we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me then at verse 7. We read there that in him, that is Christ, we have redemption. We have redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of those spiritual blessings which Paul speaks about in verse 3. Redemption is one of those themes that runs throughout the entire scripture. Indeed, one of the main themes, the big theme that runs throughout scripture. After the fall of man, we, we see God tracing out the redemption of his people throughout time. Indeed, as if we look back to verses 4 and 5, we see that it was even before the creation of all things that God purposed to redeem a people. We see then that this is, is one of uh, the great and glorious uh, truths of the entirety of Scripture. Not one thing that, that just happens in the New Testament. No, this is God's great work throughout all of time is redeeming a people for himself. Now, children, you might be asking well, what is redemption? I've heard that word before, but uh, maybe you, you don't know quite what it means. Well, redemption is simply uh, the rescue or deliverance that comes from the payment of a price. A rescue that comes from, from paying a price. Imagine that maybe uh, you had a favorite toy that got lost or stolen and and then one day, you saw that toy at a garage sale. You thought, well, that's my toy. But the people who, who had it at their garage sale said, well, no, to get this back, you need to pay me money. If you paid that money, you would be redeeming your toy. You would be getting it back. That is what redemption is. It's the rescue or deliverance that comes from the payment of a price. Just now in our Old Testament reading, 
We read how the Israelites and their praise and their rejoicing of God's great deliverance for them talked about how he had redeemed them, how he had purchased them, how he had saved them out of Egypt. The Lord redeemed his people. He rescued them at a price. You might be asking yourself, what need do we have of redemption? Why do we, why do we need redemption? Well, this, this phrase that we have been redeemed teaches us that we were owned by something before Christ paid for our sins. Uh, this teaches us that we were in a particular state that we needed rescue from. Indeed, as Christ says in John 34, we were slaves. Jesus said, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You see, outside of Christ, you're a slave. You're in bondage, completely bound up. Outside of Christ, it's not as though sin is some occasional happening something that just kind of pops up every now and then. No, you are bound in it, chained to it. It's there at every moment. Outside of Christ, you are truly a slave to sin. You can do nothing pleasing to God. You can only sin. And that is what you need rescue from. You need redemption so that you are no longer a slave to sin. Furthermore, you need rescue from God Almighty. You see, you are out, and when you are outside of Christ, you are under God's wrath and curse. And so, you need something to bring you out of that state, out from under God's wrath and curse. You need rescue. And here in verse 7, Paul reminds us that there is indeed rescue. There is redemption in Christ. But how has Christ redeemed us? What is the payment? If we keep reading in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. It is through the shed blood of Christ that we have been rescued. It is through his death on the cross as the atonement for our sin that we have this rescue. It is not through good works. It is not through payment of perishable things that we have this rescue. Uh, and as Peter says in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, that we are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. But instead, we are redeemed with the precious blood, the blood of Christ. Redemption comes not through material goods. It's through the blood of Christ. We may look at, at men in this world who have great deals of money. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or whoever the richest man is at this moment in time, they have a lot of money. They can buy pretty much anything that they could ever want. 
They can never buy redemption for themselves. Their money is perishable. It will pass away. It goes away. Dollar bill is paper. It will eventually disintegrate into dust. That cannot redeem you. But through the blood of Christ, there is redemption. Imperishable, everlasting blood. For as long as Christ lives and reigns, his blood is payment for our sin. It will not fade away. It is not perishable. It is everlasting. So we see then that our redemption comes at great cost. There's great value in this redemption price. Far more valuable than gold, silver, precious gems, or anything. We also see, though, that since the blood of Christ is what redeems us, that there is a great necessity. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, Scripture states. So without the shedding of Christ's blood, without his death on the cross, there would be no redemption for his people. It's through the blood of Christ and the blood of Christ alone that we have redemption. And this should cause us to, to have great hope and rejoice. As I said, Christ's blood is so valuable. Christ's death, so kind and gracious. Christ's death, the thing that appeased the wrath of God, that is what has been given for our redemption. And so we really should never doubt, we who trust in Christ, you should, you should never doubt that, that perhaps uh, something has not uh, um, fully atoned for your sin. You, you must not doubt or think that you have to do something extra. Well, see, the blood of Christ is so uh, incomparably precious that to try and do anything extra to secure your salvation is to demean, or devalue the blood of Christ. That's, that's, it is the perfect payment. Perfect and complete payment. So when you think Christ's death on your behalf, rest in the fact that it has been a perfect and complete and total payment for your sins. And know then that your salvation is a definite salvation. Well, as we continue in verse 7, Paul kind of reiterates this idea, but uses different language. He says that we have redemption through Christ's blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. He says that we have this now. This, is, this language being used here is, is in the present tense. It is not a thing that occurred in the past and no longer has effect. It's not something that you might only have in the future. No, in Christ you have forgiveness for all of your sins now. Forgiveness for the great treason that you commit against God when you break his law. Even now, you have that. And you have that forgiveness in abundance. 
and a great abundance. The forgiveness of our trespasses are according to the riches of his grace, of God's grace, which he lavished upon us. According to the riches of his grace. How rich is the grace of God? Well, if all of, if all of God's attributes are descriptive of his attributes, then his grace is an infinite grace. Eternal grace. Everlasting grace. The riches of God's grace are more than you could ever comprehend. And it is the riches of those grace which he pours out upon us, forgiving us of our sins. He lavishes them upon us. An abundance of abundance. It's, it's language uh, like a cup overflowing. And you just keep pouring into it and it just keeps overflowing and overflowing. It's lavished. It's abundant. It's according to his riches. In Christ the treasure house of God's grace is thrown open. And God says to you, this is yours. You are given grace according to the riches of God. Not just a little bit here and there, but a superabundance at all time. You have a great and glorious salvation having been purchased by Christ's blood and had the grace of God poured out and poured out and poured out upon you. Great and glorious and certain salvation. For if the riches of God's grace are poured out upon you, then you can be certain of his forgiveness of your sins. This should cause us Think to pause and, and ask ourselves, are we trusting in Christ? Are we resting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Children, are you resting in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you, do you look to him alone for your salvation? Do you understand that there's nothing that you can do to secure your salvation? You can't earn it. You can't say, well, I'm going to work really, really, really hard. And if I do that, maybe God will be happy with me. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have all of God's pleasure. If you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're one of those uh, who has been adopted as God's son. He's your heavenly father, and he loves you. He calls you to obedience. But you do not earn your salvation. You do not have to try and earn the Father's pleasure through your actions. Trust in Christ and then obey him because you love him and want to glorify him. So we should ask ourselves, are, are we trusting in Christ or ourselves? Are, if you are, Looking to your own works, you are thinking, well, I can earn God's uh, favor. I can earn my own redemption. You've completely uh, 
fail to understand the great value of the atonement which has been made. Do you think that your actions, your works, your good deeds, as good as they are, and men can do things which look very good. You can give millions of dollars away. You can rescue the lives of thousands. But do those good works compare to the blood of Christ? They do not. They cannot. The blood of Christ is infinite in value. Our good works are tainted. Even our best works are tainted by sin. And so to say that we can earn redemption is to demean, uh, to devalue, to, to fail to understand just how valuable Christ's blood is. So then I would exhort you that, that if you do think this way, if for whatever reason you have thought, well, I'll earn my redemption, repent. Trust in Christ. Look to him. Ask him for forgiveness and trust that his blood makes full atonement. And then those of us who, who are trusting in Christ, have you forgotten what a great salvation you have? Have you begun taking for granted uh, Christ's shedding of blood? Do you, do you sin and say, well, that's okay. Christ shed his blood for me. I have forgiveness of sins, which has been lavished upon me. That so terribly wrong as well. Dear ones, to, to forget how great a gift our salvation is, to forget how supremely valuable the shedding of Christ's blood is, is, is sin. And we who trust in Christ must repent of that as well. And we ought to, to dwell, we want to meditate on this, to, to dwell on it, to think about it, to think how great and glorious is it that the second person of the Trinity took on human flesh and came to earth and shed his blood for me. Oh, that should cause us to rejoice. It should cause us to, to praise God day in and day out. That doesn't put a smile on your face. Really, nothing else will. It's wonderful and glorious that Christ shed his blood for us and be provided salvation for us and bestows upon us the riches of God's grace. We see then this, this salvation through Christ's blood in verses 7 and 8. But then we also see a restoration in verses, uh, the end of verse 8 through verse 10. Christ has procured salvation, redemption through his blood, but that's not the entirety of the reason why Christ came to earth. Indeed, it's only, it's only part of why Christ came. Christ also came for restoration, restoration of all things. Look with me to the second half of verse 8. We read, In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to the administration suitable for the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven 
and things on earth. We see then here in, in verses 8 and 9 the revelation of this restoration of all things. We read that he made known to us the mystery of his will. God has revealed his will to us. Now, children, you heard the word mystery. And you might be thinking something along the lines, oh, detectives. They look for clues. They figure things out, and they solve mysteries. True, they do. But when the Bible uses the term mystery, it's not talking about something that a detective can figure out with clues. No, a mystery in the Bible is one of these great and glorious things which God knows and which God reveals to us. That's what Paul says here. He says that he made known to us the mystery of his will. God told us what his will is in Christ Jesus. God took one of those great hidden things and he shows it to us. A mystery is not an enigma, something formerly hidden and undiscoverable through human insight, which God now reveals through the gospel and in Christ. So God reveals to us then the mystery of his will. And what is this great mystery that he's revealed? Well, part of it is certainly our salvation. The redemption which we have in Christ. Paul is speaking here to Ephesians, and he's, he's speaking to you now. God's will for your salvation, for you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, has been revealed to you. But there's a bigger picture here. There's even more. There's the fact that God is restoring all things in Christ. We read then in the end of verse 9, I'll just read all of verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable for the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. So then what is this? This mystery revealed, well, it's, it's God's purpose. It's the purpose which God has purposed in Christ. The summing up of all things in Christ. All things united in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. It's the fact that our redemption and creation's restoration... Is all taking place for the express purpose of exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation is part of Christ summing up all things, of uniting all things in him. Essentially of Christ ruling and reigning over all things as king. It's, it's Christ, the head over all things. This is the grand purpose of of God. It's not merely that Jesus came and died for our sins so that one day we could go to heaven. That is part of it. That is true. But all of creation 
is being restored. Christ makes all things new, is making all things new. Everything in heaven and on earth is eventually going to be subject completely and entirely and totally to King Jesus. Jesus rules and reigns over all things now as the Father is placing all things in subjection to him. Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father as all of his enemies are made his footstool. And, and one day, all creation will bend the knee. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. We see then this, this great and grand purpose. Essentially, an answer to our petition in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come and thy will be done. That is God's purpose, for his kingdom to come in the entirety, for his will to be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Everything in subjection to Christ, everything in harmony under the rule and reign of King Jesus. Uh, but when will this happen? Well, we see then this phrase, this, this administration suitable to the fullness of times. Fullness of the times could also be uh, rendered as the appointed time, the proper time. You remember in my opening illustration that, that the Allies had an appointed time to, to invade Normandy, France. God has a proper and appointed time for all things to be summed up, all things to be united in Christ. When is that appointed time? We live in the fullness of time in one sense. In the fullness of time, Christ came. That was God's appointed time for that. And so we live in that time. But uh, here, Paul is, is speaking of that unknown day when Christ returns. The Father knows, but we do not. And so we live in expectation that this time is coming. And we pray with great joy and hope, come Lord Jesus, knowing that he definitely will because it is, it is promised in Scripture that he will return. The fullness of time is God's appointed set time, a day which will certainly come. That is God's grand and glorious purpose. A set appointed time, a definite time, when Christ will come when he will send his angels to gather together his saints and to separate them, the wheat, from the chaff, to bring them into his barns, to dwell with his people, the new heavens and the new earth. That, that is God's purpose, to exalt Christ by setting him up as the king over all things. And then Christ points to the Father and says, look at how glorious and great my Father is. That is the entire purpose of our salvation, the entire purpose of the restoration of all things, the exaltation of Christ, the glorifying of our God. That should, that should cause us with, with Paul to rejoice, say, oh, the riches of God's grace, 
Oh, to the praise of God's grace. He's appointed these things and he has he's carried them out. It is great and glorious. So what should we then do with this knowledge? It's, it's all fine and, and dandy to, to say, well, this is God's great and glorious purpose, but how exactly does that affect me? Well, first of all, live your life in service to King Jesus. You know then that, that God's purpose is the exaltation of Christ. Work for the exaltation of Christ. Glorify him. Tell people about him. Don't live your life uh, hiding, thinking, well, one day Jesus is going to come back, so I'm just going to hunker down here and wait for that to happen. We read in, in Exodus, when, when the Lord redeemed Israel from Egypt, the Israelites rejoiced in the fact that their God is a warrior, that he's strong. God calls us, his people, to go forth and proclaim the crown rights of King Jesus throughout all the earth. The Moravian church, for, for all of their issues back in the day, had probably the, the coolest slogan of, of any denomination. They had a flag that said, the Lamb has conquered, let us follow him. You're saying the Lamb has conquered. Follow him. Live your lives in service to King Jesus. Whatever you do, do it to his glory. Do it for the, the spread of his kingdom, for the increase of his glory, for his exaltation. Live your life for that great and glorious purpose. The Allied forces had what many of us would consider a, a very great purpose the liberation of Europe. It's a pretty great purpose. And ultimately, they, they were successful. Our God has an even greater purpose in the liberation of his people. That is the exaltation of Christ and the restoration of all things. We see that in verses 7 and 8, we, we see this great and glorious salvation which we have, redemption through Christ's blood. Salvation which ought to cause us to uh, repent of our sins and, and to follow wholeheartedly after Christ. We also see God's great and glorious purpose in the summing up of all things in Christ, this glorious purpose of restoration, the renewal of all things. We see that God has made known to us this mystery, not so that we can sit back and relax, not do anything, but so that we can glorify Christ as he deserves this great and glorious salvation. We see in this, this text that in Christ there is a definite salvation and a definite restoration meant to glorify God and exalt Christ. And we are called then, people of God, as followers of Christ, to work hard at this task of exalting Christ and glorifying God. Words of the Moravians. Lamb has conquered. 
Let us follow him. Let us do so wholeheartedly. All of our heart, soul, mind, and strength by his grace. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.